We now begin 10 parts in the King, the prophesied reconciliation of God's two witnesses. I am your author uh, and host, Peter G. Rambo Sr. And this is going to be the introduction as well as chapter one. The book was originally published in 2018, and it is uh, dedicated to the memory of Keith, uh, uh, yes, Keith Gordon Green, born October 21, 1953, died in a tragic plane crash with several of his children, I think three of his six children, July 28, 1982. And the line says, the seeds sown in a life so short shall bear fruit a lifetime later. And uh, Keith Green was a major influence on many, many, many of us, particularly through his music. Uh, interesting, interesting man who was Jewish and sought all of the Eastern religions and then came to know Jesus, Messiah, Yeshua HaMashiach, um, and had an amazing music ministry. Um, and still, I guess on YouTube, you can search Keith Green's music today and find just wonderful, wonderful stuff. So anyway, here we go. This is the introduction titled Pictured in a Parable. There is an account in the scriptures that presents a prophetic picture of the coming messianic age. It concerns the aftermath of the civil war in Israel that erupted when Ab Absalom usurped the throne from his father David in 2 Samuel chapters 15 through 18. When David's loyal forces had defeated the rebels in battle on the eastern side of the Jordan River, the king prepared to return across the river to regain his throne in Jerusalem. This is where we find a particular turn of events. The scriptures say, Then King David went to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, saying, Speak to the elders of Judah, saying, Why are you the last to bring the king back to his house? Since the word of all Israel has come to the king, even to his house. You are my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? So to Amasa, or say to Amasa, are you not my bone and my flesh? May God do so to me and more also if you will not com be commander of the army before me continually in place of Joab. Thus he turned the hearts of all the men of Judah as one man so that they sent word to the king saying, return you and all your servants. The king then returned and came as far as the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal in order to go to meet the king to bring the king across the Jordan. This is from 2 Samuel chapter 19, verses 11 through 15. Why would Judah not reclaim their king? Perhaps because the rebellion against him originated from within Judah. When Absalom claimed the throne, he did so from Hebron, Hebron, the city of Judah, where David first reigned over his own tribe and house, 2 Samuel 5, 4 and 5, and also 15, 7 through 12. Doubtless, there was a large degree of shame involved, particularly on the part of Amasa, the Judean commander of Absalom's army. Nevertheless, the king would not return until his own kin acknowledged him and welcomed him back, something which another son of David said many centuries later. Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 through 39. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stoned, stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather you to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, 
and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, Baruch haba b'shem Yehovah, or blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Yahweh. Today, the Christian world acknowledges Yeshua, son of David, as Messiah and King of Israel, but oddly enough, does not acknowledge their own part in the same kingdom. Jews, for the most part, do not acknowledge Yeshua as anyone of importance to them, other than inspiring centuries of virulent anti-Semitism, but they jealously guard the nation of Israel and their place within it. That, too, is reminiscent of the aftermath of Absalom's rebellion. Now, the king went on to Gilgal, and Chimham went on with him, and all the people of Judah and also half the people of Israel accompanied the king. And behold, all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why, has, why had our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household and all David's men with him over the Jordan? Then all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, because the king is a close relative to us. Why then are you angry with this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense, or has anything been taken for us? But the men of Israel answered the men of Judah and said, We have ten parts in the king. Therefore, we also have more claim on David than you. Why then did you treat us with contempt? Was it not our advice first to bring back our king? Yet the words of the men of Judah were harsher than the words of the men of Israel. And that comes from 2 Samuel chapter 19, verses 40 through 43. The ten tribes today are becoming aware of their identity. That is, the fruit of the worldwide awakening Torah sweeping through Christianity. As Christians awaken to the fact that the Torah, the law, teaching, and commandments of God are, are often called simply the law, is still applicable today. They, are, they also are awakening to the fact that they are part of, of the nation of Israel. Unlike Jews who can trace their ancestry to the ancient house of Judah, these awakening Hebrews are known as Ephraimites a people linked through time and spirit to the ancient non-Jewish part of God's covenant nation known in Scripture by the names of House of Israel, House of Joseph, and House of Ephraim. These newly aware Hebrews are beginning to look to their brethren of Judah and say, we have ten parts in the king. Some, like our ancestors, continue to say, therefore we also have more claim on you, on David, than you. They do not speak for all of us. A growing number of modern-day Ephraimites have recognized that our return to full fellowship with our king means a return in humility to reconcile with the Jewish brethren we have envied all these years and who have suffered immeasurably from the fruit of our envy. If the testimony of Scripture is true, then there are two parts to the nation of Israel, two houses, each with a distinct mission but together destined to complete a single united kingdom in the age of Messiah's reign from Zion. My purpose is not to convince, but to present the evidence. I invite you to weigh the evidence for yourself to discern if these things are true. And there are several missives scattered throughout the book, and so I will... Uh, Give the first illustration here, the, the first missive uh, 
Um, each of these is a page long. And this one says, many houses, or how many houses are there in Israel? House, in this sense, is not a building where a family lives, but a household. It refers to an extended family, including ancestors and descendants, both native-born and attached, such as servants. And Israel contains many houses. You're familiar with the term from scriptures you've read, but maybe have never thought it through. House of Jacob. The house of Jacob is all of Israel. The nation gained its name from the patriarch Jacob, whom God renamed Israel upon his return to the promised land. Genesis chapter 32, verses 24 through 32. <coughs> Excuse me. House of David. Israel's ruling dynasty from which Messiah comes. King David came from the tribe of Judah and ruled over the house of Judah before becoming king of the United Nation. After the rebellion of the northern tribes, David's descendants retained their position as rulers of Judah. See 1 Samuel 20, verses 16. Verse 16, 2 Samuel 2, 11, uh, 7, 25 through 27, and Zechariah 12, verses 7 through 10. House of Judah, the house of Judah and the southern kingdom, or, or and the southern kingdom of Israel, or the house of Judah is the southern kingdom. First Kings 12, verses uh, 21 through 24, and Hosea 1, 7. The house of Israel. Sometimes this refers to the entire nation of Israel, but usually it refers to the northern tribes who established a separate kingdom in rebellion against the house of David. See 1 Kings 12, verses 16 through 19, and Hosea 1, verse 4. The house of Joseph. Jacob's son Joseph fathered two of Israel's tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh, or Manasseh. Genesis 48, verses 8 through 22. This term refers to those tribes... Joshua 17, 17, as well as the northern house of Israel. Um, 2 Samuel 19, verses 16 through 23. 1 Kings 11, verses 26 through 40. And Obadiah 1, 18. And the last house mentioned here is the house of Ephraim, or house of Ephraim. Joseph's second son, Ephraim, inherited the family name when his uh Grandfather Jacob passed the birthright to him in Genesis 48, verses 8 through 22. House of Ephraim refers not only to the, the tribe he fathered, but to the entire northern house of Israel, of which Ephraim was the chief tribe. It was the dynastic tribe for the northern kingdom. Uh, all of the kings in the northern kingdom came from the tribe of Ephraim. Uh, Isaiah 7, 17, and Hosea 6, 10. Chapter 1, When God Divides the House. One of my earliest memories of television was watching the Clemson Tigers defeat the powerful Nebraska Cornhusker football team in the 1981 Orange Bowl for the coveted national championship. My grandfather was a 1940 graduate of Clemson and a rabid fan of his alma mater. He had season tickets to the football games, and I remember many balmy Saturday afternoons tailgating, grilling, and throwing a football around in addition to climbing high in the Death Valley Stadium to watch other matches on the gridiron. <clears throat> Most fall weekends were planned around either attending the games or listening on the radio or watching television uh, as our beloved Tigers or my beloved Tigers clawed for victory. <clears throat> 
How can I not grow up a devoted fan? Everyone in my family was a Clemson fan. Well, almost everyone. My brother, Jonathan, converted to, quote unquote, the dark side and is a vocal South Carolina Gamecocks fan. The University of South Carolina has long been Clemson's hated in-state rival. In the early 1900s, the rivalry was so fierce at one point that guns and knives were involved in a showdown between fans. In fact, I think the um, rivalry was stopped for a couple of years. Otherwise, it would be the longest running rivalry or continuous running rivalry in college football. Collegiate football in the South is a religion. Everything through the week, from water cooler conversation at work to party planning, revolves around Saturday's games. Every major team has an arch rival that fuels competitive jabs and sometimes grave division. Clemson has South Carolina. Florida State has Florida. Alabama has Auburn. Georgia has Georgia Tech, and the list goes on. Many, many rivalries span generations with rabid fans who love their teams, living and dying on each win and loss. In the midst of the seeming friendly banter on the fan, uh, in the fan bases, there's always tension and envy. Often hurt feelings and emotions get out of line, and there are divided houses. <clears throat> Every fan base is familiar with the vanity plates on the front of cars or flags in the front yard with house divided as the motif. When a Michigan fan marries a Michigan State fan, the house is sure to have unsettled times around the momentous weekends when the two teams meet in sport. In some cases, relationships become strained, while in others, the rivalry spawns nothing more than sharp, humorous jabs. The house is said to be divided. Envy and jealousy of each other's success is an undercurrent in even the most peaceful relation. Scripture tells a similar story, though it has not been readily recognized until the last few decades. Writ large through the pages of Scripture is an intriguing and glorious tale of envy, jealousy, and competition that begins in Genesis and is not re resolved until Revelation. Every biblical prophet touches on this story in some way, and many make the topic their only concern. Yet for 2,000 years, we have largely been oblivious to this wrestling match of a divided house. There are a dozen or more overlapping motifs that reveal this intriguing story and the Father's unchanging plan and purpose. His purpose is to restore the kingdom and have a nation of priests who reveal his glory to all of creation. Most students of Scripture readily accept this is truth, but few understand how he is accomplishing his purposes, or even that this restoration is the single most prophesied event in Scripture, even more direct mentions and allusions than coming than the coming of the Messiah. <clears throat> In the following pages, I will seek to reveal the fullness of this topic and how Scripture exposes it through direct statements, imagery, parable, and prophecy. I will share a story that leads to the restoration of the most divided house in history. I will reveal the greater role of the Messiah beyond the traditional Christian understanding of his role as personal Savior. You will begin to understand the larger story of Scripture, why so much of the Bible is both history and prophecy, how all the pieces fit together, and how you fit in the greater picture of biblical history and the progress of redemption. This journey on which we are embarking is one of intrigue, but more importantly, it is one of answers to many puzzling questions in the drama of human history. 
I invite you to step outside of traditional interpretation and discover a more complete picture of the whole flow of Hebrew history and the biblical record. At the center of this picture is the story of a divided house. A father divides his house. Before we can tackle this story at the center of history and understand how the house was divided, we must consider a picture presented in Genesis chapter 32 and 33. For 20 years, Jacob had been out of the land given to his grandfather, Abraham. He had left with little more than his staff and the clothes on his back, but now he was returning with a large family, many offspring, and thousands of sheep, goats, donkeys, and camels. He had indeed been blessed and multiplied abundantly, but he was keenly aware of the dangers that lay ahead. Scripture relates that the night before crossing into the land, he wrestled with a man whom Jacob himself attested to be an incarnation of the Lord, Genesis 32, 24-28. This prophetic encounter foreshadows a future period known as the time of Jacob's trouble, Jeremiah 30, verse 7, an era of extreme difficulty for the nation of Israel, which Christians commonly call the tribulation. What happened to Jacob during that encounter forever changed his life and prefigures what will happen to the nation he fathered. When he refused to let his opponent go, the man touched his leg, dislocating the socket of his thigh and causing him to limp thereafter. Even that did not keep Jacob from clinging to his heavenly visitor and from boldly requesting a blessing. The man agreed, changing Jacob's name to Israel, or Prince of God, or one who prevails with God. That name change brought with it assurance that, that Jacob and his seed would prevail, both in the trials immediately in front of him and in the great trials to come throughout history to the end of the ages. When morning came as Israel prepared to cross into the land, he saw, maybe in a vision, his brother Esau and 400 men coming for him. In a swift move to pervert, preserve his family, he divided them into two groups. His first wife, Leah, and her sons led the way over the river Jabbok, followed by his beloved second wife, Rachel, and her son, Joseph. Because we have not understood the larger overarching message of Scripture from beginning to end, we have assumed that this story was simply that, a story with a few spiritual lessons. And yet the magnitude of this prophetic picture cannot be overstated. The picture will become increasingly clear in the coming pages. For now, understand that we set this account before you to demonstrate that it is not unprecedented in Scripture to see the Father divide a family to convey them safely through danger and into the promised land. Not only does God the Father, by His will, take exactly the same actions with all Israel, but He does so through the hand of Jacob. Before we look at the actions performed by Jacob's hands, we must leap forward several centuries to the events of 1 Kings chapter 12. Here we find the defining point in, in the history of Israel and the central part of a complex story that begins in Genesis and ends in Revelation. Without understanding 1 Kings chapter 12 and its relation to the rest of Scripture, we cannot understand the Messiah, the prophets, or the apostles. Truly, we cannot rightly understand any of Scripture. A bold statement, yes, but I will prove it true. A kingdom divided. 
Rehoboam inherited the world's most powerful and prosperous kingdom from his father, Solomon. Forty years of heavy taxation and state-building projects had, however, taken their toll on Israel. Rebellion was in the air. Shortly after his coronation at Shechem, a large delegation of representatives from the northern ten tribes came to Rehoboam. Their request was simple. Your father made our yoke hard. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke, which he put on us, and we will serve you. 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 4. Rehoboam told them to depart for three days. Then at the end of three days, return to me on the third day. During those three days, Rehoboam counseled with his old wise, or his old and wise advisors before foolishly settling on the advice of his young and inexperienced peers. Upon return, upon the return of the delegation from the northern tribes, Rehoboam foolishly promised to be harder on them than his father ever was. <coughs> Excuse me. The result of Rehoboam's decision was disastrous, but certainly not unexpected by men or by God. Scripture relates that when the northern tribes heard the decree, they immediately withdrew from Judah. 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 16 through 19. When all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, saying, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, now look after your own house, David. So Israel departed to their tents. But as for the sons of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah, Rehoboam reigned over them. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was over the forced labor, and all Israel stoned him to death. And King Rehoboam made haste to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. The prophet Ahijah had prophesied to Jeroboam the Ephraimite that ten parts of the kingdom would be placed in his hand. 1 Kings chapter 11, 31. Jeroboam was an industrious young man whom Solomon had previously charged with leading the forced labor from the house of Joseph, the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. When the tribes rose in rebellion, the ambitious Jeroboam surfaced as the logical choice to rule over the newly formed northern kingdom. Quick footnote on that. It says, I refer to the number of houses in this book, specifically the house of Jacob, house of Israel, house of Judah, house of Joseph, house of Ephraim, and house of David, which this can be confusing for two reasons. First, there's so many that it can be di uh, difficult to keep them apart. And second, none of these terms refer interchangeably to the same group of people. I hope to make this clear as I go along. It's easy, though, to know who the house of Jacob is. They are the entire nation of Israel. The man who, whose name Yahweh changed from Jacob to Israel as he was returning from his entire, uh, returning with his entire family or house to the promised land. So although some are quick to declare that this rebellion and division was not of God, the scriptures say otherwise. Rehoboam gathered 180,000 chosen warriors of Judah and Benjamin to fight against the house of Israel and restore the kingdom. But before they could march out to war, 
First Kings chapter 12, 22 through 24 relates that the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah, the man of God, saying, Speak to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, saying, Thus says Yahweh, You must not go up and fight against your relatives, the sons of Israel. Every Return every man to his house, for this thing has come from me. So they listened to the word of Yahweh and returned and went their way according to the word of Yahweh, the Lord. Just as Ahijah had prophesied over Jeroboam that God would tear the kingdom apart and give ten pieces to Jeroboam, Shemaiah had confirmed that it was God's plan to divide the kingdom. As I will demonstrate, there are multiple specific reasons why the Father divided the kingdom. But first we need to understand that according to Genesis 48 and 49, the seeds of this separation were planted by Jacob himself. As we have seen at the time of Jacob's troubles on the northern shore of the Jabbok, he wrestled with a man, I put that in quotes, who changed his name from Jacob to Israel. Later, when Israel was old, his son Joseph, who had become viceroy of Egypt, <clears throat> relocated his father and his entire family to Goshen. It is from his bed in Goshen that Israel sets the course of biblical and world history through several blessings and prophetic acts. The scripture tells us, Now it came about after these things that Joseph was told, Behold, your father is sick. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him. When it was told to Jacob, Behold, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel collected his strength and sat up in the bed. Genesis 48, verses 1 and 2. The details of the whole story in Genesis 48 are important, but I want us to focus on a couple of specific points in the latter half of the chapter. Israel blessed Joseph by blessing and adopting his two grandsons as his own sons, thus giving Joseph a double portion and the firstborn preeminence. Genesis 48, uh, 14 to 16 relates, But Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands. Although Manasseh was the firstborn, he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads, and may my name live on in them and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. <clears throat> As we will see, Ephraim and Manasseh have a special purpose and calling. Not only did Israel cross his hands in an odd move, placing the younger Ephraim ahead of Manasseh, but he also declared that the angel who redeemed me would be the one to bless the lads. This is a stunning prophecy involving the angel of the Lord and the sign of the cross, where he crosses his hands to make this. Clear, uh, clarity would not come for 1,500 or more years. Joseph expressed displeasure at the elevation of Ephraim over Manasseh, but Israel was firm. He answers Joseph's concern by saying, I know my son, I know. He also will become a, pe a great a people, and he also will be great. However, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. Genesis 48, 19. 
As if the initial act wasn't shocking enough, Israel further clarifies by stating that Ephraim's descendants would be Melohagoyim, literally, the fullness of the nations, or the fullness of the Gentiles. At that moment, the course and trajectory of the gospel of the kingdom was established, but before his death, Israel would perform one final act that would set the drama of redemption in motion. He summoned all of his sons and explained to them what would befall them in the latter days, Genesis chapter 49, verse 1. In doing so, he broke with tradition of giving both the headship and the firstborn blessing of abundance to the same son. Rather, Israel imparted headship, the scepter, to Judah, while heaping fruitfulness on Joseph by giving him the double portion of the firstborn. His two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, would become fathers of tribes along with their uncles, and the responsibility of carrying on the family name of Israel. To Judah, Israel said, Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who dares rouse him up. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his fold to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine and his teeth white from milk. Genesis 49 verses 8 through 12. To Joseph, he says, Joseph is a fruitful bough, the fruitful bough by a spring. Its branches run over a wall. The archers bitterly attacked him and shot at him and harassed him, but his bow remained firm and his arms were agile from the hand of the mighty one of Jacob. For there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, from the God of your father who helps you and by the almighty who blesses you with blessings of heaven from above, blessings of the deep that lie beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father have surpassed the blessings of my ancestors. Up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills, may they be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers. Genesis 49, verses 22 through 26. A quick footnote at the beginning of that, it said, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. The term translated fruitful in the Hebrew is the word para, which is Strong's 6509, which is the root of Ephraim, uh, which, which has the meaning double portion. The fruitful or the figurative meaning of the word bow is son or sons. By using these words, Israel affirms yet again the fruitful blessing on Ephraim and his descendants, the sons of Joseph. This blessing on Joseph is in addition to the blessing Jacob had bestowed on him previously. He had already given Joseph the double portion by making him the father of two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. Now your two sons who were born to you in the land of of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. Then Joseph, then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. 
I give you one portion more than your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. Genesis 48, verse 5 and 21 through 22. In the traditional practice, the firstborn receives this double portion so that he had the resources to provide for the family as the new patriarch once the father had died. By his actions, however, Jacob declares that Joseph is to provide the resources that Judah is to administer wisely on behalf of the entire family. As at the Jabbok, Jacob, now known as Israel, divides the family into two parts, the full manifestation of which does not occur until Jeroboam, the Ephraimite, is made king over the northern ten tribes. Scripture then begins to refer to this prophesied and divinely directed division as the house of Israel, also known as the house of Ephraim or the house of Joseph, and sometimes simply Ephraim. A footnote for that says that since the terms house of Israel, house of Ephraim, and house of Joseph refer to the same group of people, i.e., Uh, Israelites of the northern kingdom, or the ten tribes. From this point forward, I will follow the precedent of Scripture and use these terms interchangeably. In general, as I reference specific passages of Scripture, I will use the name Israel, Ephraim, or Joseph that appears in each passage as we discuss it. So why? Why divide the kingdom? It was clearly prophesied, and God himself declares that the division is from him. But to what purpose? A myopic view of history would regard this split as a disaster from the start. Jeroboam wasted no time in plunging the house of Israel into idolatry in clear violation of the Torah and the prophetic utterance of Ahijah. It is useful at this point to review that prophecy and find out exactly what Jeroboam was supposed to have done. Uh, From 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 29 through 39, It came about at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, found him on the road. Now Ahijah had clothed himself with a new cloak, and both of them were in the field. Then Ahijah took hold of the new cloak which was on him and tore it into twelve pieces. He said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and give you ten tribes. But he will have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel, because they have, because they have forsaken me and have worshipped Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemoth, the god of Moab, Milcom, the god of the sons of Ammon, and they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight and observing my statutes and my ordinances as his father David did. Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of my servant David, whom I chose, who observed my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom from his son's hand and give it to you, even ten tribes. But to his son I will will give one tribe, that my servant David may have a lamp always before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen for myself to put my name. I will take you, and you shall reign over whatever you desire, and you shall be king over Israel. Then it will be that if you listen to all that I command you, and walk in my ways, and do what is right in my sight by observing my statutes and my commandments, as my servant David did, then I will be with you and build you an enduring house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. 
Thus, I will afflict the descendants of David for you, but not always. Sadly, Jeroboam did not abide by the terms of this prophetic declaration. As he consolidated his hold on the kingdom, Jeroboam sought ways to prevent his people from making pilgrimages to Jerusalem for the feasts or to make sacrifices. He instituted his own priesthood, his own places of worship, and his own feast days. Essentially, he kept a form of worship of Yahweh that was based on the Torah, but made significant changes that led the people away from Jerusalem and from the house of David. Now, recall that the house of David is a term used consistently throughout Scripture to refer to the Davidic dynasty. David is the king Yahweh anointed to rule over the United Kingdom of Israel. First uh, Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. According to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 8, 17, and 2 Kings 2, 1 through 4, Yahweh also promised that David's royal line would rule over Israel forever, meaning that Messiah would come from his descendants. Within a few short decades, the house of Israel had descended into gross idolatry and began receiving warnings from prophets sent specifically to them. The southern house of Judah also committed abominations, but it was Israel, the house of Ephraim, that was prophesied to be scattered, while Judah would be preserved. Drawing a clear distinction between the houses and their respective fates, the prophet Hosea says, Then she, meaning Hosea's wife, conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And Yahweh said to him, Name her Lo Ruhamah, no mercy. For I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel that I would ever forgive them, but I will have compassion on the house of Judah and deliver them by Yahweh their God and will not deliver them by bow, sword, battle, horses, or horsemen. Hosea 1, 6 6 and 7. Jeremiah also foretold the uh, the distinct judgments God would inflict on Israel and Judah. Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 6 through 10 says, Then Yahweh said to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen what faithless Israel did? She went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and she was a harlot. Uh, There. I thought, after she's done all these things, she will return to me. But she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, I had sent her away and given her a writ of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she went and was a harlot also. Because of the lightness of her harlotry, she polluted the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. Yet in spite of all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but rather in deception, declares Yahweh, Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 6 through 10. Hosea confirms the divorce when he says in chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, When she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, she conceived and gave birth to a son, and Yahweh said, Name him Lo-Ami, not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. This is a devastating sentence levied against the house of Israel. No greater dishonor existed in the ancient Near East than being cut off from the family. But Hosea continues with a word of hope. He says in verses 10 and 11 of the first chapter, Yea, the number of the, or yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it will be said of them, You are the sons of the living God, and the sons of Judah, 
and the sons of Israel will be gathered together. And they will appoint for themselves one leader, and they will go up for the land, up from the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. In a wild twist that would puzzle the rabbis for centuries, Hosea proclaims that the house of Israel would not only be restored, but rejoined to the house of Judah. Their astonishment is justifiable. The Torah clearly says in Deuteronomy 24 that a divorced bride who has had relations with another man cannot return to her former husband. That passage of Scripture says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house, and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's, And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before Yahweh, and you shall not bring sin on the land which Yahweh your Elohim, your God, gives you as an inheritance, Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. Israel had clearly committed gross adultery on every high place. How then could she return to Yahweh? Yet Yahweh, through Jeremiah, says, Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a delightful child? Indeed, as often as I have spoken against him, I certainly still remember him. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares Yahweh. Set up for yourself road marks. Place for yourself guideposts. Direct your mind to the highway, the way by which you went. Return, O virgin of Israel, return to these your cities. Jeremiah 31, verses 20 through 21. And that is the end of the chapter. There is a a quick page here with a note that I want to read and in front of you right quick to wrap this up. Jacob's 12 sons. Jacob had 12 sons by his wives, Leah and Rachel, and his concubines, Zilpah and Bilhah. The tribes of Israel are named for Jacob's sons and grandsons. 11 of his sons became fathers of one tribe each, but Joseph, who inherited the birthright, gained a double portion when his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, became father of tribes as well. Genesis 48, 8 through 22, and 1 Chronicles 5, 1 and 2. So the sons of Leah, now we've got four different family groupings in the house of Jacob. <clears throat> and so, or in Israel. And those, those four groupings fall into two groupings, which are the children of Leah and her concubine and the children of Rachel and her concubine. So Leah's sons are Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's handmaid, are Gad and Asher. On Rachel's, in Rachel's grouping, the sons of Rachel are Joseph and Benjamin, with Joseph having two tribes named by his sons Manasseh and Ephraim. And then uh, Rachel's handmaid Bilhah had Dan and Naphtali. So that's a that's a rundown on the 12 tribes. And so all of this, you know, we're we're given all of this information all the way through 
through scripture and it's spelled out in history and all these different pieces parts but in Christendom we we were not raised understanding how that relates to us or why does this matter and uh, I think that will become increasingly clear as we move forward in the book here and it will become apparent as to what God's plan and purpose is and what is happening in in history and in prophecy and in eschatology and how he's going to do all of this to bring the family back together. Um, but we still have more to learn about how the division came about, what the division caused and all that sort of thing, and then where it goes from there. So shalom, shalom, and we'll pick up chapter two in the next episode.